and talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life be real welcome one and all to be real it is your movie reviewing and reappraising an occasionally director interview having podcast my name's chance solemn pfeiffer and i'm noah ballard how are you friend I'm pretty great. How are you? I'm well. What uh, what category did you devise that's bringing us here today? We're jumping right in. Let's do it. Um, well, much like you and me, Chance, uh, as enterprising Americans, oh. um, I think we're pretty enterprising. But anyway, no, I thought it would be interesting because it seems like there's a trend in movies to make movies about con artists with the word American in the title. So we're doing enterprising Americans, and we're doing American-made, American animals, and American hustle. That's right. All movies centered around people doing illegal things to rise to the top in this here America. That's right. It's a good category that you devised. I think it's interesting in general, too, like what's connoted by a movie with that title. Because if you think about it like... American Sniper, American Assassin, like studios have felt comfortable. One of the few mid-budget things they've felt comfortable with in recent years is calling movies American Noun because they think people will turn out to it. Well, there's something like just sort of deeply affecting about saying something is American because it evokes some sort of reaction in you. And like for an American sniper or American assassin or whatever like that, it's like a deep patriotism and sacrifices that must be made like for this country. But for these movies, I would argue it's the myth of like the American dream. Sure. And the lies that undergird it. Right. And like how the other half... That's the interesting thing about this the this series of movies cuz it makes you wonder like what percentage of the population is living like this? <laughs> yeah, sure. Like how many of cuz these are all either true some truer than others but all based on true stories. Uh right. Yeah, they're all sort of true crimey. Uh some with happier endings than others. Actually yes. all of them with pretty sad endings. We're going to start with American Animals, which is a movie that came out in New York and L.A. last week and comes out in a lot of other places this week. Uh, And coming up, we were able to get Bart Layton, who directed the film, on the horn. But before we do that, we'll set up the movie a little bit. American Animals, interesting title because I feel like it's... um, When you hear American Animals, you're like, am I going to watch something about, like a gang of bro- am I going to watch Animal Kingdom like a gang of brothers like fighting it out and like being savage but that's really not what this title no, means the title here. the title is somewhat misleading and it's probably a reference to what they're stealing yes. more than it is to them um yeah the American Animal sort of evokes for me at least like a I thought I was going into like a warriors or sort of lost boys right, kind right. of story here um or even like sort of once upon a time in America or something like that. What this movie is, is it is, uh, like you said, based on a true story of four college-age Kentucky kids in the early 2000s who try to steal rare books from the University of Lexington, which are valued at something like 13... That was the University of Transylvania. Oh, right, right, sorry, in Lexington. It's the one kid goes to uh, KU, UK. UK. Yes. Um... 
Spencer Reinhardt is the real person here played by Barry Keoghan, who you might know from Dunkirk or Killing of a Sacred Deer, um, who kind of comes up with this, this plan to steal these books that are valued at something like $13 million from the college library. Uh, and what follows is a very like deconstructionist heist film that edits together interviews with the real people who did this uh, with the dramatization of the events. Um, and your way into it is interesting because it's, it's not clear necessarily that the movie is going to be set up like this. So the first time a talking head happens, you're kind of like, what is this? What am I watching? At least for me. You ever seen that movie Alpha Dog? With JT and Bruce Willis? Yes. Uh-huh. Is, and Sharon Stone. I think that's right. It's, it's about a, a kid who gets kid. They like kidnap a kid fake to like get the ransom money from his parents or something. Right. It's like a, all the money in the world kind of set up. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, it, it cuts in with interviews, not of the actual people, but of like age makeup, uh, like the actors who play them. Oh yeah. Okay. That's right. I forgot about that. Which I reminded me of this, but this is the real people. But I think with the, the trick of this movie is the talking heads are clearly in a space. So when you first meet Spencer, he's in a workshop. Yeah. And there's like tools on the back of the wall and you like don't know where he is. It's not clear that like, is he in a, like a low security prison workshop mm-hmm. or is he like just in his own garage? And not really knowing how this is going to unfold, I think is the biggest trick of this movie and the way that it does sort of seal it at the end is like a bittersweet but ultimately sort of satisfying thing. Right. Which is the, it's a huge swing. Like having movies that are satisfying with this sort of heist setup, you know, is the difference between like a classic like Ocean's Eleven or like Tower Heist with Eddie Murphy or and Alan Alda. <laughs> right. Or Alpha Dog, you know. <laughs> right. Where we just reference it to, like, make a weird point about something that wasn't very effective. So you have all the elements of a heist movie. And in fact, these four young men are watching heist movies to figure out how to pull off these heists. And and the the four young men uh, are Spencer Reinhardt, as we mentioned, uh, Warren Lipka, um, who's sort of like the spiritual leader of the group. Um, he's the one who's like wild and emotional and impulsive and will seemingly get it done when other people are like, maybe we should back out of this. And Warren Lipka is played by Evan Peters um, from the new X-Men movies and from American Horror Story. Um, and then there's Chaz Allen, who's like this uh, workout junkie and sort of like young financial whiz who they need because they need, they need somebody with a fast car and some money. And then there's Eric Borsuk. Who I it's not clear to me why he's there necessarily. They just need more. He's like heads. the brains. Yeah. Yeah. They need and he's also like the muscle, sort of. Sort of. And it's interesting as you're just naming the cast members too. This movie and also this series, like this genre, has a bizarre trend of like women not being terribly important to the main narrative. Mm-hmm. I mean, American Hustle, like, of course, has Amy Adams um, and Jennifer Lawrence in it, and we'll get there. But this one, there's no sort of, like, high school, college crush. You know, there's no, like, girls they're, like, 
making out with on the side. Like, all these men are very alone, which leads me to, and maybe this is because I just went to Nick White's book launch last night uh, and heard him read from his, like, pretty gay collection of short stories. Is there, like, a gay read here? At least between Spencer and Warren, there's, like... He was just, like, they were just sort of entranced with the other. Mm -hmm. Like, one of them had the plan, and one of them had, like, the passion. And together they, like, had this relationship that manifested as this heist. And there's even that scene and that shot where Warren's, like, curled up on Spencer a bit in that bed in New York where they, like, finally feel free in this non-Southern sort of, like, liberal setting. That's right. That's right. I forgot about that. I think there is something here. But let's get into the plot more of this movie. So Spencer sees this this case of books in the library where he's a student. Right. And this thing goes into motion, and around you, you sort of have these broken, you know, young men. Uh, Warren's parents are getting divorced in a pretty hilarious scene of, like, they're having a pretty normal dinner, and, like, the mother breaks a plate, and she's like, I'm divorcing your husband. And it just sort of walks out, and the husband bursts into tears. Or, I'm divorcing your father. Right. And the father bursts into tears, and then Warren's so, like... He's just, I don't know, he's so upset at, like, the cuckolding that has happened that he just, like, screams at him. Yeah. Like, how can you be so powerless? Like, are you crying? Are you fucking crying? Yeah. And all this is going on, and these men are coming of age, and you see them, like, piece together. And they're not very smart. They have a lot of that thing you need to be, like, an enterprising American, but <laughs> they're not very intelligent. So maybe that's the role of the guy who's going to UK. Yeah. Just, like, we need some someone who's, like, smart here. Like, somebody who knows the answer even with one earbud in. Someone to really mark Zuckerberg uh, in that establishing shot of the classroom and social network. Right. Uh, you know, just to show that he's he's the brains. Yeah. And as they, like creep closer and closer toward committing this crime it becomes a movie about like how you conspire when you have no idea what you're doing will anybody eventually throw up a red flag will well like, what what are the weird kind of dynamics that happen when like everyone kind of wants to do it but nobody really wants to do it and it becomes yeah, a de- nobody it's like a basically like a deconstructionist heist movie about the fantasy of pulling off a heist versus the reality of doing so and then kind of like, sadly, just the, because it's based on a true story, the trip wires of the social contract. And when you trip one, what happens? You're not going back. Right. And it leads to a pretty climactic fucking... Harrowing. Like, harrowing heist sequence that I think is one of the better heist sequences I've seen in a while from like a movie of like this independent ilk. The last one I can think of is maybe the lookout with, um, mm-hmm. Jogo. Yeah. Scott Frank. No. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Scott Frank. Um, that's yeah. a good one, but this is, or, or even like a brick, right? Like another Ryan Jogo. Johnson's another Jogo. This could have been easily a, a, a Jogo. Jogo picture, but maybe not because I think what's really brilliant are the performances specifically from Spencer as this, like, I mean, he's a sociopath or something. Like, he doesn't really have emotions. Like, even at the end when they're, you know, I'm not going to spoil it, but even at the end where, like, shit's fucked, you know? Yeah. He he doesn't seem that concerned. Sure. Or maybe he does, because there's that phone call. 
but it's almost like an intellectual challenge. Like that's mm-hmm. what I like about these movies. It's just it. like it's it's very much like with the you know the boots I'm wearing right now, I'm gonna pull myself up. Yeah. And this is the cleverest thing I can think of. And here, here's this book of Autobahn paintings. Uh-huh. And a first edition of Darwin's Origin of Species. Um, should we go to the interview before we kind of talk about it more? Yeah, let's, let's hear from this guy. Okay, so I called Bart Layton like three weeks ago now when he was uh, in the Pacific Northwest for the Seattle Film Festival and was, uh, was screening American Animals. You ever feel like you're waiting for something to happen? It pains me to see you embarrass your father. But you don't know what it is. You're in, or you're out. That thing that could make your life special. You're in, or you're out. You're in. Oh, you're out. How can I tell you if I'm in or I'm out without you telling me the first thing about what I might be in or out of? This would be something dangerous and very exciting. Okay. How's your day? Are you up in Seattle, right? Yeah, I literally just the second arrived. I arrived uh, um, from L.A. and uh, just the second arrived at the hotel. It's great. It's sun shining and good. I'm looking at that massive, you know, weird kind of aircraft control tower type structure <laughs> the space needle yeah nice nice um is the film screening tomorrow or tonight tonight uh, tonight and tomorrow how many times have you seen it with an audience Do you know what i probably should watch it more with uh with 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 audiences with more audiences i've i mean you you get to a point with it where you've seen it so many times that sure unless you can really like just watch the audience it kind of gets a little you know and, and often you see things that you wish you could change and obviously you can't change it, so. well so the reason i brought that up is i'm curious have you run across people at these screenings who get to the end of the movie and they're still not sure whether it's a true story have you gotten that response yes and and what's going on with those folks well, it's a good question, but, you know, there's no... Uh, I mean, it's actually even something that happened with the last film I made, which was called The Imposter, which was actually right. a documentary. And people used to put their hands up at the end of Q&As and say, I'm interested to know if this is based on a true story. And it's like, what? You just watched the, you just watched the documentary. I mean, um, so actually, this time around, I was very clear on the credits. I even made a special kind of, um, what's the word, sort of effort to put uh, real Spencer Reinhardt played right. by Spencer Reinhardt, real Warren Lipka played by Warren Lipka, you know, just so that sure. people went under confusion. But I guess that's the thing when you come across stories which are sort of, um, you know, stranger than fiction. There, yeah. is that, there is that tendency for people to doubt it, you know, and... and you know, with good reason, probably. I mean, there are things like, you know, I, Tonya has um, sure. interviews which aren't real interviews there. Um, you know, they're, they're with actors. So, you know, you can kind of understand it. Yeah. Well, and I sort of felt 
so I, I I ask because I you know after giving the movie a Google after having watched it, it was like I was snapped into place. This happened. Everything's good. But what, something about when even when you're watching people who the movie says is real disagree about the facts of a story and whether things ever happened, it's like there's a seed of doubt that just creeps into everything. Well, exactly. I mean, there's the whole thing about you know. It's not just narrators who are unreliable. I mean, memory is fundamentally unreliable as well. What do you make of the fact that all four of the real guys at some point, or in some form at this point in their lives, are, are or are trying to be storytellers? I think that's a really good question and really good observation, Chance. I mean, I think, you know, in a way, you know, part of what, was motivating what they did, I think, was more than, you know, an idea that they were going to pull this thing off and they were going to get rich and, you know, run off into the sunset with the loot and yeah. <laughs> have this kind of life, you know, this kind of butch and sundark sort of thing. I, I think that, you know, Warren is clearly a fantasist. You know, that's one of his kind of, you know essential qualities and I also think that part of what was motivating them was this need this this desire to have a story to tell yeah to be interesting to be you know particularly with Spencer you know who's longing to be an artist and feeling that the major impediment to that is that he's not going to ever he's not ever likely to be confronted with any trauma or meaningful life experience that's going to make him an interesting person with, you know, something to say. And yeah. so, you know, all of that, you know, so, so the fact that they've become, you know, storytellers in some way, you know, and the fact that, you know, you, you know, they were trying to sort of almost live a movie-like fantasy and to mm-hmm. inhabit that. And I, I'm not sure that, you know, honestly, I'm not sure that any of them ever really thought that they were going to go through with it. I think they wanted to sort of take it as far as it could go and, and right up to the sort of precipice and look over the cliff edge and not actually jump. Do you have any idea what kind of films Warren wants to make today? He's going to film school, right? Yeah, he's just, um, he's literally just graduated. He just texted me today. He's finished. Oh, that's awesome. Um, you know what? That's, do you know what? I don't know what kind of films. I think, you know, knowing Warren, he will be attracted to uh, sort of, you know, extreme stories and stories of, you know, he's a very, uh, he's very people orientated. You know, he's a, he's a, he's your ultimate kind of, uh, kind of charismatic leader in a way. And sure. he, I'm sure it will be stories which somehow, you know, talk about that. And probably, you know, like me, he's interested in, in decisions, you know, in, in the decisions that people make that lead to, you know, that sort of spiral into something else that perhaps mm-hmm. they hadn't anticipated. Let me ask you this, Bart. I was reading the uh, the Vanity Fair story about the actual heist, which I think was published in 2007. That must have been what turned a lot of people onto this story. Um, and I was struck by the fact that I, they must have been, I don't know, three years into the prison sentence at the time. The way that they talked about the uh, robbery then 
really did not bear much similarity, especially in terms of how repentant they were to what is captured in your film. So as you started to talk to these guys, did you see them grow and change and evolve in their feelings about what they did? I mean, I hadn't had the experience of talking to them previously. So my experience was based on, you know, uh, the letters. You know, we started corresponding from... You know, while they were in prison, we started a correspondence. Uh, I was writing back and forth with each of them. And that was really the thing that made me go from thinking that it was a, you know, that it was a fun story and that it was a, you know, it was a ripping yarn to um, that actually that it was a film that I wanted to make and it was about something other than just the crime. It wasn't until they started writing to me and you know the honesty of what they said in those letters was the thing that made me want to write the screenplay and you know and particularly you know Spencer talking about feeling that his life was sort of too nice in a way and you know if you ever put pick up a kind of how to write a screenplay book you know one of the first things it will say is you know establish your central character and establish his or her problem, you know. And, you know, Spencer's problem was that he doesn't have a problem. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. And that is such a great, you know, as a dramatist, that is such a great starting point. I felt that throughout the process, you know, it wasn't until we got down to shooting interviews with them that I, uh, that, you know, the the sort of, I guess, the depth of their regret came mm-hmm. through yeah. and you know and that was a very important part of the story that i wanted to tell so speaking of spencer uh I've, I've heard you talk about how in the in the casting here you weren't attempting to go for you know look-alike verisimilitude or anything like that what is it what do spencer and barry Kugan? they have many things not in common but what what do they have in common when i for i was wondering for me it seemed like a certain like there's a certain inscrutability to both of them, especially compared to the rest of them, but what, what do you see going on? They're, they're kind of observers rather than, you know, they're sort of watchful people. Yeah, I felt even in the first Spencer talking heads, I mean, you can see Warren emoting and you can see the regret of the other people, but I almost see Spencer like looking out at you or out at us and being like, what, what are you doing? And that's such a weird thing to, to be confronted with in a talking head. Yeah, he's definitely you know, much more of a kind of observer than, you know, he's very, very, yeah, as, you know, he's an artist, you know, he's incredibly observant yeah. and constantly watching and, uh, you know, and he's very different from from Warren in that respect, I think. But also, um, you know, they both have something quite um, sort of mysterious about them and deeply watchable and kind of Mm -hmm. intriguing you know when you meet Spencer you kind of want to understand more about him you want to get a sense of who he is and and what makes him tick and and he's got a lot of hidden depths you know the more you know more you get to know Spencer the more surprises there are and that is the same you know with Barry he is he's an actor that you sort of can't help but watch you know he's, he's got a fascinating face yeah and he's got this sort of great sort of emotional world behind his eyes and that's that's very compelling 
You bring up Barry's eyes, so I have to ask, when did you conceive of that brilliant cut between him opening his eyes and the barn owl painting? <laughs> um, no, it was really just that we were trying to find kind of um, kind of avian alter egos. Got to find that blue-eyed bird then. Yeah, well, it was also just that, like, there was something about, like, the watchful thing, you know? Like, you know, owls are definitely sure. watchful and quiet and reserved uh-huh. and they seem intelligent and, you know, so it was sort of that kind of thing. Um, I don't know if you've seen the poster, but we had a lot of fun trying to figure out, you know, which the bird heads should be in the poster. Oh, okay. I got to look at that. Um how much fun was getting to do your 60 seconds of Soderbergh with uh, with the Elvis song and the the heist the heist that was not to be? Well, it was a lot of fun. In fact, that was probably one of the more, more fun things. Although it came out of um, a situation that wasn't very fun because I had originally planned to shoot that sequence in a very uh, not in a one not in a single shot, but more like. Uh, in something like 60 or 70 shots, and it was going to okay. be like a kind of drum solo. You know, it's going to be this incredibly yeah. percussive, lots of shots. It's going to be this very kind of slick, whiz-bang sort of, you know. Um, and we just simply didn't have time. You know, the first AD turned to me, and he was like, there's no way, you know, I can give you the time you need to shoot it in the way that you're... You know, I had sort of storyboarded it in this very, it was going to be this very, very slick sequence. Yeah. Um, and so then I had to think about a different way of doing that same kind of slick. Everything is like a well-oiled machine, you know, which is going to be very much the antithesis of the, you know, in their imaginations, it was going to be one thing. So, yeah, so in the end, I had to come up with a way of doing the whole thing in a single shot. And so it took a lot of rehearsing. You know, you've got three, you got well, you've got four characters, and then you've right. got the camera as well to choreograph. And so I think it took us, um, you know, a long time to rehearse and then a short time to shoot. Although it took us, it took us about 16, 15 or 16 takes to get it, to nail it. And then when we did nail it, because, you know, everything, someone will drop something. Or something. <laughs> I was going to ask, yeah, maybe the keys don't get caught in one take. Yeah, exactly, or the the cameraman, you know, slips up or whatever it is. So, um, yeah, so we, um, I think it was like the 16th take. And then when we got it, everyone just sort of erupted in like you know cheers and yeah it was really fun well that's great that's great uh well bart i think that's my time man but it was a pleasure talking to you and congrats on making such a thought-provoking movie i've i've enjoyed talking about it almost i think as much as i enjoyed watching it so thank you sir great excellent well a pleasure thanks and good questions chunk of course of course enjoy the enjoy your time in seattle in the next couple of days man cheers mate this library is home to the most valuable book in the United States. $12 million. You really need to see how easy this is going to be. Oh, you know this from all your previous heists? Those are the words from, from the man himself, the man who corresponded with the characters in this movie while they were in jail and then got them on board to make a movie about it. Um, so one of the things that I want to say about American animals and this 
genre in general that I think is really cool about this movie is I've always felt that when you have a heist movie, the most important conspirator in the heist is the filmmaker. Like Ocean's Eleven, the most important person in that crew is Steven Soderbergh because he brings you through it with such ease. I I feel like I wrote this when I was watched Lucky Lo, uh, Logan Lucky last year, but it just feels like a roller coaster where like the you know the drops are all pre-planned like i'm gonna make your stomach leap that much and then you'll be like oh i'm so smart i I made it through that little bout of excitement one of the coolest things that bart layton does in this movie is there's a sequence where you get the soderberghian fantasy um but by the time they are we'll say incapacitating the one of the guardians of the book you are not on their side at least I wasn't. I was horrified. Yeah, because the movie sort of, well, there has to be that con against the audience, too, and they right. have to pull that. Because, like, what Ocean's Eleven so brilliant at is, like, you're in the con faster than you think you are. Yeah. Like, with everything. And then, like, the doubling back and, like, the secret videotapes and everything. Like, it, it makes sense in your mind. But this one, like, it gives you an out. And it's like, okay, they like went just up to the line and then they like didn't jump. Yeah. You know, and then they do. And it's so like, it's both satisfying to see that seal being broken. Yeah. But it's like one of the guys says in the movie, like once you cross that line, you can never unknow what it's like to cross that line. I like breaking down these these movies about like con artists or thieves or gamblers or ne'er do wells into like is the movie um, a an examination of how good they are at their jobs or their existence and the movies that like focus on if they're good at their jobs are pleasant to watch and the movies that are like no your your livelihood whether you will be in jail or die like depends on this like like a good time. Um, or like win it all are much scarier and much harder to pull off. I think. Yeah, but but you also, according to our rating system, uh, you're towing that line though. Because if it's yep. too realistic and too good, then it's it's not watchable. Yeah, it becomes comes a one time kind of thing. Should we explain so our rating system on that note? Let's let's hop to that old timey music. Okay. There is no ambiguity on Be Real. All movies can and will be classified by one of our four ratings. Good Good, Bad Bad, Good Bad, and Bad Good. The first good or bad refers to sheer artistry. The second is pure entertainment. Good Good is easy to explain. It's a movie that engages your inner art critic and brings you some form of happiness. For both reasons, you want to watch that movie again. Think Shawshank Redemption or Jurassic Park. <laughs> or more recently, Get Out and Lady Bird. That we know of yet. Good good movies make Noah hyperbolically say, That was the best movie I've ever seen. Bad Bad is easy too. Movies that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just spent two hours wishing you could watch something else. Think of any musician turned actor who gave it a go in a Nicholas Sparks adaptation. I'll pass. Or many Nicolas Cage movie where he plays a wizard or a warrior. You are going to be a force for good and a very important sorcerer. Bad, bad movies make chance say, I hate so much that you made me watch that. 
Now, good, bad movies. Those we recognize as worthwhile in a cinematic sense, but don't necessarily enjoy. Think Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, or awards bait that hinges on a historical figure delivering an impassioned speech. I have given you my soul. Leave me my name! These kinds of movies make Noah say, But it was so boring. And then I remind him that at least Leo finally got his Oscar for crawling through all that mud. Conversely, bad good movies feed your thoughtless inner child. They're anything from flawed but charming Nancy Myers outings. I'm miraculously done being in love with you! To late career missteps like Al Pacino and Danny Collins. They're loud and silly, like Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China, or Stargate. It's all in the reflexes. Bad good movies make me want to watch Tombstone, especially when Noah says, But didn't the Mighty Ducks just give you that warm holiday feeling? Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear two friends who watch movies for very different reasons talk about their taste like it's God's own truth. I really liked this movie. Mm-hmm. Um... I'm not just saying that because we got the director on. Yeah, I liked it too, for real. I'm just, I'm debating between good, good, like a soft, good, good, or a soft, good, bad. Because it's like, it's a pretty dark film. Yeah. But I think there's enough sort of like fun to it that like, I may pop it on like when it's inevitably on Netflix or HBO and like give it a, or like if I can get, Lucy, my girlfriend, to watch it. Uh, yeah. I think the more I think about it, I was really thinking about a, a good bad too. I think the inventiveness of it is amazing. I've never seen anything like the cuts from the real people explaining the plot to the actors explaining the plot and disagreeing about where they were when they were coming up with the details and Barry Keoghan and Evan Peters being on a porch in one of them in a car in the other and Barry Keoghan goes pull in here but they're on the porch right like as the like the or the the man whether he was like an old man with a nice coat or like a young man with a ponytail yeah like you see both scenes and it like reverses in a way to like it's some ingenious filmmaking it's like various like theatrical stages have been like half pulled apart because to show the sort of rashomon effect that's that's overtaken these people so it's it's essentially the same story you know and then when it gets to the highest moment like everybody remembers exactly what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's you know, unquestionably it a first good in that sense. Technically, a technical masterpiece. Um, but whether or not you'd throw it on just for just for laughs. I think the I think it's actually the second time through, it's not the uh, it's not the actors I want to watch. I want to like look in the eyes of Warren and Spencer again and try to like be that detective that people get in the true crime thing where it's like you lying to me? There's that attracts me back. I think the layers of this movie do make it a soft good good. So I'm gonna go good good. I'll go too. Well, thanks to Bart, that was that was fun. And I gotta watch that first movie, The Imposter. That sounds wild as well about like a French con man who like pretends to be a Texas family's like son who's been missing for decades, and they like believe him. It sounds Bart Layton is attracted to interesting stories. It sounds like. Yeah, well, I think this is his first, like, non-full documentary. Right. I mean, this is sort of a half documentary. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. American Hustle or American Made? Let's do American Made. Okay. So this movie came out last September, 
directed by Doug Lyman, who gave us such films as Born Identity and uh, Edge of Tomorrow, starring Thomas Cruise as a uh, real-life pilot Barry Seal. And as you texted me earlier today, it's one hell of a flattery to the late Barry Seal. <laughs> yeah, Barry Seal was not as handsome as Tom Cruise is. Who is, but Barry is not. But so this movie, you know, fast and loose, real fast, real loose. Um, This movie has scenes that go on for days and like whole sequences that are over in 30 seconds. Yep. Uh, Barry Seal was a TWA pilot in the late 70s who, according to this movie, um, did everything from smuggle guns to the Contras to smuggle coke up to the states from the Medellin cartel in Colombia, to uh, hang out with, um, I was going to say Pablo Neruda, but Noriega is the name I'm looking for. Um, <laughs> <laughs> totally different movie in that case. Yep. Um, contracted by the CIA, uh, c- contracted by the White House after he was fucked by the CIA. It's, it is a, it is a, a very cocaine dusted forest gump is how i would describe this for me and it's also a movie that only began with a couple of boxes of cigars that's right that's right life is like a box of cigars one might say yeah you never know when you're gonna get busted for smuggling them across international waters when general hux is going to show up and conscript you into service We'll get to Donald yeah. Gleason so that's in a how bit. the movie, yeah. So that's how the movie like abruptly begins. Is like Tom Cruise just landed somewhere tropical, and he's just trying to have himself a drink. Right. And then General Hux is waiting for him in like the hotel bar, and they like hang out, and he's like, "You're busted on bringing these cigars in. You've been doing it for years, unless you go on this little mission with me." And without really any resistance at all. Tom Cruise is just like Barry Seal's just like sure. He's I'm bored. In. He is yeah. bored and I think not that intelligent. Right. The the the, the two things you need to be an enterprising <laughs> American. Um, bored and not very intelligent. Good at something, sure, but not smart enough to be scared. I mean, he's like he has a talent, so to speak. Oh, for sure. But what he's harnessing it for is like, like it spins off the rails. Yeah. You know? This too shall pass in both senses. And, but he's by the money. And if he like, he ends up like being essentially, you know, the owner of this small town. Right. Mina, Arkansas. Right. And if he's like not, if he's not busted by the whomever, he's what various government organizations bust him at the end. Uh, he ends up being the villain from uh, It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> I would love to see the Barry Seal as Mr. Potter version of this movie. Top of your class in the Civil Air Patrol. Pilot like you shouldn't be flying buses. Welcome to Miami. Welcome to Bakersfield. Haven't you ever wanted something more, Barry? You should be serving your country. You're CIA. <sighs> Shh. We need you to deliver stuff for us. Oh, this is legal? If you're doing it for the good guys? Barry Seal's a goddamn genius! 
You are an airline pilot, Barry. That's how you support this family. This is gonna be good for us. Is this all legal? You trust me? No! It feels like everyone in this movie is just on the same page in the sense of like, am I doing the right thing here? Should I even have taken this part? And Doug Lyman is like, you know what I want you to do? Don't think about that. Just go. And I mean, that's that's what Cruz is doing in like one of the only good movies I think he's been in in a, a little bit here. But like, Donald Gleason, like, should not be playing this guy. But he is going after it with such gusto, toe-to-toe with Tom Cruise, and at times getting the direction to be, like, more charismatic and more alpha than Tom Cruise. Like, he's dancing on a crate going like, we're expanding, Barry. General Hux is dancing on a crate. It's, the guy's got a lot of range, it seems. I don't know if that's but, true. But- <laughs> I think he has a lot of confidence given to him by this film. Well, this movie's a big swing by everyone involved, and I think something about that makes it, like, so wildly entertaining. Oh. It's like a rickety old house, (laughs) and you're like, the foundation of it is the cast, and then the rest of it, while the, like, the supplies on the, like, holding the thing up are, like, quality, like, it was, it feels thrown together. It feels to me like the house is breaking down and Doug Lyman is like, you know what we do? We make it a gingerbread house dusted with cocaine. <laughs> right. Well, th- this movie hits a point where and it sort of inevitably becomes a drug movie. Yes. Which is what all these movies do. And I, so I think my one big criticism and maybe like why people didn't come to this movie as they haven't with another, well, I mean, I think edge of tomorrow is like one of the better film Tom Cruise is like maybe ever done. It's good. Uh, this movie is not that good, but why people didn't come to it um, is because it's sort of well trod, like almost literary space. It's like very mm. high minded. It's got sort of the the premise of a like Goodfellas, but it's not that good. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of tired. I think it knows the beats of its genre well enough to like hit them, but the way it hits them isn't that inventive. It's sort of by the numbers in a ramshackle sort of way. Oh, but I think I agree with that, but I think it's like ramshackle, but like warp speed. Like this is a movie where Barry Seal flies over a field of cocaine plants with Pablo Escobar. And he's like, what is that? And Pablo Escobar goes, it's cocaine, Mr. Seal. Like, that's the level of subtlety we are dealing with here. Yeah, right. Like, we've got to get to the next fucking thing. Is that a George W. Bush cameo? Next fucking thing. But something about this movie, and I know it's not two hours long, but something about this movie sort of feels like the trick that Tom Cruise pulls on whatever organization is chasing him at that point with the plane. It's like, well, I may not be able to go as fast as you, but I could certainly (laughs) keep it up for longer. Oh man. But I think I'm, I'm torn between bad good and like, that's just the softest of good goods. I, I, I'm right there too. I think, uh, man, I think I might go over the line, though. I I think it's great cruise. I think much like Edge of Tomorrow, um, it's not like the best cruise. But Doug Lyman understands that at this point in his career, one of the funniest things you can do with perhaps 
the most electric movie star of the last couple decades is to have people be unimpressed with him. His wife is very unimpressed with him. Baby, don't you trust me? Fuck no. Yeah, there's something perfect about the casting of Tom Cruise because he's like at this level in his career where it's like, is like the sheen rubbing off right. from you? And that's also like the character here. Right. Like, I thought you were a successful like TWA pilot. Like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> and I like, I like like trusting him again to carry something like this. So I think I'm going to say good, good. I, I really appreciate that. Um, and to extend your Goodfellas comparison, it's kind of like the last three quarters of this movie take place on the last day of Goodfellas. Like, it struck me around the time he's burying Caleb Landry Jones's exploded car with tree branches. <laughs> I was, it's, it's another one. It's like, oh, you were never, you were never going to get away with it. And finally, I just think one of the, why it's so infinitely watchable. And I think it, goes to the first good too is just like this is not a movie that's weighed down with theme Barry Seal like spoiler you can look up Barry Seal's Wikipedia page to find out what happens to him but like he's he just ends up getting assassinated he's, <laughs> he's just the gringo who always delivers there's no like oh what tragedy oh how it's called American made but there's no like oh how American how deeply American like nah he's just a guy who like flew by to the seat of his pants for seven or eight years what do you want it's the plight of a government contractor <laughs> Yeah, you know, no health insurance. No health insurance, but so much cash at any given time. So much ca- He should have just burned it. He should have just burned it. Um, yeah, I'm going to give it a good, good, too. I, That's great. It is a blinding, high, uber-confident grift that has now worked on me twice. So Perfect. Oh, you've seen it twice already? I saw it when it came out, and I watched it for this. I watched it on a plane, like, a couple of weeks back. Were you uh, eluding, Fun to watch on a plane. eluding the DEA? I felt like I was. We had a little turbulence when he was like, it was great. <laughs> Should we get to American Hustle? Sure. 2013's American Hustle. A lauded film in its time. And it definitely has the patina of like Oscar bait from even from the old timey like Columbia, a Sony Pictures company. Yep being from the 1970s you're like okay david o russell you're going for academy awards bait historical something yes historical fun i'd like to win an oscar in the prestigious fun category right um yeah he's he's sort of a dandy that david o russell i think five years is always like a fascinating time to reappraise films because they've gone from being conversation points about how people that people must have opinions about back to just movies that are maybe streaming but by 10 years you know people have like decided yay or nay they've like canon positioned it and at this point american hustle is just something that's sort of like floating in my recent past like what was i doing three and a half years ago you know sure it's a good time Um, to come back to it it is a good thing we do a podcast that reappraises films Okay, do you want to synopsize American Hustle? Absolutely. Um, So the movie opens with the story of uh, Christian Bale's uh, Irving Rosenfelds Mm -hmm. and his new flame, Sidney Prosser, played by Amy Adams. Yeah. 
and they're having this like wonderful life together. And of course, this fucking scumbag is like married with a kid, yeah. albeit a kid he adopted from the woman he married. But like, he's not a very good husband or father. It's got that kind of first episode of Mad Men uh, twist to it, like twenty five minutes in. Twenty five minutes in, yeah. And the wife is Jennifer Lawrence, who's like crazy and horny and depressed. Yeah, and drunk. maybe a little agoraphobic. Christian Bale and Amy Adams, like they as they're dating, they also kind of turn into a con the way uh, Warren and Spencer do in their romance. Um, and they build it up from first. I guess they're like taking checks from people to like secure false bank loans or something. Then it moves on to like art forgeries and. Somewhere in the middle, uh, Bradley Cooper's Richie DeMasso shows up. Uh, he's an FBI agent. Sure. And right. he just starts chasing them down. And he says, like, if you help me, like, frame some big... Well, not frame. I mean, it turns into framing. Entrap. But if you help me entrap uh, a couple of big fish you know, I'll let you off the hook. And so they have no other choice. Sometimes all the choices in your life are poison. Mm. And so they help out. And the, the big con that they end up doing is trying to entrap uh, the Camden, New Jersey mayor. Carmine Polito. Uh, Carmine Polito, played by Jeremy Renner, who's surprisingly good in this movie. I have a take about Jeremy Renner, but let's keep going. Oh, I can't. I can't wait to hear it. Um, and they try to take him down by convincing him that there is this Sikh from the Emirates who will fund the somewhat delayed casino construction that's happening in Atlantic City. Mm-hmm. But there is no Sheik. There is no money. They're just tr- they're they're framing this. They're, they're getting this guy like so pulled into this. It's insane to me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they basically like get him involved and, you know, give the apple to Eve or whatever. And they kind of shove the apple in Eve's mouth. <laughs> yeah, they shovel it. Yeah, they shove it in her mouth oh, and yeah. say, chew. Yeah. You have to bite it. You know what movie that's from? No. Oh, it's the weird. Um, part uh, in uh, atonement with uh, what's his name uh, Kevin, uh, better to cover match got it you have to bite it <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah so and then but then they keep finding bigger fish as they go and then it like goes all the way to the top and god everyone just gets fucked yeah surprising a young Donald Trump is not in this movie if this movie had been made like any time in the past three years, it would have had Donald Trump in sure. it. <laughs> if it had been set six years later, Donald Trump would have been in it. I want to show you something. This Rembrandt here. People come from all over the world to see this. Yeah, he's good, yeah. It's a fake. What are you talking about? It's impossible. People believe what they want to believe. Because the guy who made this was so good that it's real to everybody. And who's the master? The painter or the forger? There are so many good performances in this that it's hard to dismiss outright. Right. I wouldn't do that either. I really liked it um, when it came out. 
Yeah, I liked it a lot too. Other people hated it. Yeah, some people always didn't like it, but it's—I mean—it's a—it's an incredibly flashy, dazzling movie, and there may be a light shining in your eyes, but it's—it'll always be flashing and or flashy and dazzling. Right, and this movie also does become like a cocaine movie. Right, and Richie Damaso is kind of like a cocaine character before there's any cocaine. Like that's an odd. It's an odd when he goes into that room after having arrested Sydney, and he's just like, "The thing is, I like you. I like you." I like you. It's just like, is this guy on coke now? Why is he behaving this way? But there are some funny moments too, where his like confidence gets the better of him. Oh, yeah. Like, and then the cocaine's just like, like at the casino <laughs> where he's just like, what's going on? I don't understand why you guys are like freaking out. It's like, be quiet, like assistant to the chic. Like, what are you even talking about? I think Bradley Cooper, and this is like skinny Bradley Cooper. This is like like way, way before he signed on to do American Sniper Bradley Cooper. Yeah. When he was still like physical. But in this one, he's so scrawny that like he's, I, he's so like bad he's good. Makes you wonder where he's been. He has incredible magnetism. Well, that's, right. that's the thing that this movie is based on. It is based on the magnetism of these actors and these seemingly almost incidental decisions that they make in scenes. Like, all of the scenes where, like, Amy Adams or where Sydney and Richie are, like, about to have sex, but, like, the plan is that they won't because she's, like, holding... She's holding off on that as, like, a card to play um, are insane. And, like, I love the decisions that people make when they're, like just so close together and they're, you know, the story is handcuffed them together and they really want to get apart and they can't get apart. Like the decision that on the plane when they're uh, meeting Michael Pena, an FBI agent who's posing as the sheik and Richie just starts like complimenting Irving. He's just like, this guy's the mastermind. He's like, Oh, you're complimenting me now. You're complimenting me now. And he keeps doing it. They're just odd little quirks that are undeniable. But there's, well, that's the thing too. There's, there's that, but but I think just on an acting level, like this movie not only has good performances, but the tension between Bradley Cooper and Christian Bale yeah. is like unbelievable. They're so angry about being in the same frame with each other in a lot of the scenes. Uh-huh. Like they're trying to like force each other out, like when they're on the plane together. Like Bradley Cooper keeps like almost cutting in front of like the camera, which is like, get out of my way. Like I'm explaining the plan. <laughs> yeah, you wonder if they got along. I mean, Christian. I mean, Bale. either they really, really got along, or they like definitely didn't. <laughs> I think that's about right. Oh my god, his belly is so good. He's such a method actor. You think you would just get to American Psycho shape and then just say "fuck it"? I'm only taking on this role. You can't do a, over a thousand crunches every day for the rest of your life. <laughs> I can do over a thousand. That's now. what I was going for. <laughs> Um, yeah, no more scripts. I have to return some videotapes. A method actor, yes, but to what? So one of the things that I've I've never been certain about in this movie, and I'm less certain than ever now that I watch it in the sort of the cold light of five years later, is like, are these characters very well drawn? I mean, if you look at the arc of the characters and what they all need and what they purport to need and what we figure out they might need, I don't think anyone makes a lot of sense. Least of all, uh, Mrs. Rosenfeld, Roz, played by Jennifer Lawrence. She's like a drunk shut-in 
who is afraid to go outside until she is drunk, at which point she is the life of the party, embarrasses everyone, says her life is poison, and resolves her character sort of by dating a mobster. And then the movie's like, she'll always be interesting. That feels zany and lazy to me. And a little bit sexist. Yes. She feels a little too, like, some of this movie feels like a little too David O. Russell-y for me to make me believe that it's a true story. Well, so break that, can you break down the Irvin character for me? Like, what is his, what is that character? Well, that's the interesting thing. He, for a character who's described so many times in, like, very simple ways by people, like, a lot of the time in voiceover, um, he's, yeah, he's kind of a bizarre character who's just like I mean he's almost like Woody Harrelson in solo. He's just like the guy who knows how to live on like live that life of just like from the hip living or something. Yeah. He's just got that intuition. He like knows I mean, he's not successful. He's like a huckster. Woody Harrelson from solo doesn't get eighty percent of what he wants at the end though. Right. You know? I feel like that's the that's the thing about how all these people are drawn. This movie is kind of it is fun and light and dazzling in so many ways, and yet this movie's about two hours, 20 minutes. It is lar- yeah, this got half. It is larded with this need for theme. We were even conning ourselves. Is something you need to let the audience figure out. Don't say it three times and then give most of the people what they want in the end. I just don't think we need to like linger so much on like, we get it. He's like a shitty dad or like, we get it. Jennifer Lawrence, like can't even use a microwave, you know, like really whatever things that like show a lot of fault in these characters with like out giving them any real direction in order to change. Yeah. Nor do they need to say the line. One of the lines that jumped out at me this time was Irving tells Richie, you can't do this to people right after Watergate and the Vietnam war. (laughs) You, that's something you say to someone in a room to prove that it's the 1970s? Yeah, you say, like, right now. Um, the other thing, too, like, it's a lot of characters, and this is just a David O. Russell thing. Yeah. I mean, most of I Heart Huckabee is just this. Characters shouting at other characters, like, what they want. Yes. Like, from, like, not, like, physically, but, like, I'm the quarterback now. Like, I'm calling the plays. It's my show. Yep. It's, like... We get that. Like, we get that from the way you're slinking around. Like, you don't then need to look directly at the camera, Bradley Cooper, and tell us, like, what this character's doing. It's called acting, dear boy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And, but let's take a turn. For all of these reasons, against what I thought five years ago, my favorite character and performance in this movie, Jeremy Renner as Carmine Polito, because he has a consistent character who looks at what it is to be enterprising and American in a consistent way. All these other wackos are wildly overcorrecting. And Carmine Polito, right. there's there's such a a a goodness and a like he looks at Bale and's like, I hope I hope you're not screwing me, man. I really hope you aren't and I I want to believe that you aren't. He conveys that in several looks that really make that kind of a heartbreaking part of the movie. Well, you see, I mean, his character arc makes sense. It's like someone who's remembered in Camden, New Jersey, and like someone who would be like an East Coast legend. Yeah. Like that's what he wants to become. I mean, he knows that what they're doing is illegal, but like, yes, he has that performance of like 
you're not going to fuck me here, right? Yeah. And, and a, that's great and heartbreaking. It doesn't need to be screamed. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the scenes I think with Christian Bale, like in front of the Plaza Hotel, like that went a little long maybe. That's what I think David O. Russell needs to learn. It's like you don't need to go long for us to get the points you're trying to make. The crime of this movie is that it is two hours and 20 minutes long. If it was trimmed down to uh, an American maid or you know, even framed the way American Animals is. Like, it's a much more watchable movie. It's still highly watchable, oh, I think. It's very watchable. Um, but but the- I think it's it's laissez-faire direction and story outlining uh, make it a bad good. Really? Oh, you beat me to the punch. Um, yeah, I'm going there too. I The more I thought about this movie, the more I felt like uh, panning in on people's faces 50 times is not a well-rounded visual aesthetic. Um, the more I felt like, okay, so I never understood the Irving character, but I always assumed David O. Russell did. And now I'm like, no, he doesn't. Well, I don't know that David O. Russell wrote the character that Christian Bale is playing, which is a performance, but it's not a character, I would say. I mean, well, whether that's true or there's some debt to history or whether we're just talking about why is this movie two hours and 20 minutes long, the thing about this movie that it could learn from American Made is that, like, you don't have to take a heist movie this seriously. Just skate. Skate a little bit more. Well, have more fun scenes. Yeah. Like, this movie is, like, a lot of scenes of, like, ooh, character doing something mean or sneaky or conny. But you need more of that, like, I thought, like, one of the lighter, like, sort of brighter moments of this movie is, like, when they're just sort of dancing in the the clothes oh, turning yeah. thing at the dry cleaner. Absolutely. Like, that's, like, a fun shot, and the camera's kind of getting hit by them, too. Like, it's fun. Yep. And that's, like, a cool, like, that's why David Rowe Russell, like, frustrates me so much as a director, because he has good instincts. In retrospect, I think what's sad is that you can see joy coming. I never saw joy coming, but... If you watch this movie now, you can see it. I never saw Joy, period. It is the worst parts of this movie. Okay, so I'm going bad good on this one, too. That was great. Did we agree on everything? That's upsetting. We did agree on everything. Well, fuck you, Chance. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Maybe I'm just conning you. You ever think about that? Yeah, you'll be like, actually, I thought they were the opposite of everything I just said. And I've had the egg since the second scene in the movie. (laughs) Yeah, if you uh, if you go back and listen to the white noise at the beginning, you can hear me giving everything a bad bad. Anyway, hey, thanks to the director of American Animals for coming on the show. Uh, Hope you're not too horrified with what you signed up for. I, <laughs> um, I think we both recommend that movie, buddy. This was great. I'll talk to you soon. Hey, this was a pleasure. Enjoy the rest of your evening. <laughs>